So we're so glad that you're here this morning uh, for worship, for those joining us online, and uh, for those who are part of traditions or meeting in kindred uh, this morning. We'd love to worship together. I bet you can't uh, guess what our new sermon series is. It might be something like that, we believe, right? So this morning, I've been talking about this series a little bit, but this morning we're going to begin a journey, a journey that will hopefully challenge us to think about what we believe, and not only what we believe, but to challenge us to think about why do we believe what we believe. Uh, In a day of cyber theology, I want us to look at 10 topics that I believe in the same way that our denomination believes are important for us to settle in our minds and important for us to settle in our hearts. While I will spend most of our time kind of flying the helicopter, so to speak, along the mountaintops, kind of hitting the main points of of these 10 pieces of our statement of faith, once in a while we'll take the helicopter and we'll do a nosedive down into the valley because sometimes the sub points can help us understand the main point a little bit better. My goal um, cannot be to answer all of your questions or to hit every key point that you think that I should. My goal is to bring the topic before you and, and, and to sit it down in front of you and to talk about it and then to leave you to interact with it and to dig deeper using the only viable resource, which is what? The Word of God. I need to say from the get-go, my primary resource is the Word of God. Like God, it is perfectly consistent. Any other resource, unless it agrees with the Word of God, is not of use. The Word of God must be the standard. It must be the starting blocks for everything that we're going to talk about. And as soon as we waver there, all truth then becomes relative. So before I dive in for our topic today, I want to explain the phrase significance of silence. This is a really, really key phrase. The free church, which is the part of the denomination that we are part of, the free church has chosen to take a position on those things that we believe really matter for eternity. In other words, we major on the majors. The Evangelical Free Church of America focuses on the essential truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ while allowing differing understandings of some doctrines within certain theological parameters. For example... We do not require agreement on the timing of the tribulation or the rapture. So some people in this room might say that I'm pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib. And some of you right now are saying, I have no idea what you're even talking about. You must be tribbing. Tripping, tribbing. We refer to our openness regarding these theological differences as the significance of silence. It's not to say that these things don't matter and that they won't be discussed, but it is to say we won't divide over them. Some additional resources for this series, um, Evangelical Convictions, we have a number of copies of Evangelical Convictions uh, out in the information desk. If you would like to purchase a copy of that, um, it's it's some great reading. Um, There's also a free audio on the EFCA website if you'd rather listen to it. But also, if you have not downloaded what's called the Speak Truth app, which was developed by our student ministry, Pastor Stephen and Sarah. If you haven't uh, downloaded that, I encourage you to do that and dive deeper into each of the week's topics. 
So today, I just want to begin with a really small topic as we get going. It's the topic of God. So in 30 minutes, I'll do my best to teach you, remind you, challenge you, and encourage you about God. Here we go. If you're following along on your outline or you version, we believe God is the creator of all things. So the first thing that we have to settle is what do we mean when we say God? Can anyone, no matter who their God is, claim what we believe? Can anyone say that their God is also the creator? Just how many gods are there anyway? So I just Googled how many gods are currently being worshiped today and I got answers anywhere from 5,000 to millions of gods. And in fact, some people say that the Hindu religion worships 33 million gods alone. So when we say God is the creator of all things, we have to ask the question, well, which God? When the Israelites were about to enter the promised land that God had given them, he repeatedly warned them that they would be surrounded by all kinds of nations that worship many gods, but they weren't supposed to be influenced by them or be misled by them. Instead, he said to them, this is what he said, hear, O Israel, in other words, hear my children, listen to me, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. And this statement was affirmed later again by Jesus in the New Testament. To believe that there is one God is foundational to everything that we believe. That he is the God of the past, he's the God of the present, and he's the God of the future. He is unchanging. Isaiah 46 verse 5 and then verse 9, verse 9 will be on the screen in a second, says this. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? And then verse 9, Isaiah 46 says this. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. To believe in one God means that we are monotheistic. By the way, if you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We've got some ushers who have Bibles. To believe in one God means that we are monotheistic. To believe in many gods means that you're polytheistic. While there may be um, all kinds of tidbits when you think about different religions, the God of the Bible is the great I am. The self-existing one is what that means. And the reason it's difficult for some to believe in one God is because when they look around with their eyes and they they look and see what all that they see and what they're experiencing and and what's going on in their life, they think, oh, well, there can't be just one God because it's inconsistent with the God that I have in my head. It doesn't make any sense. So Pastor Andy, you're going to tell me that there's one God and he's this and he's that, but I look around and the things I experience, it doesn't make sense. I I can't reconcile that. To make sense of it all, people pick and choose pieces of gods from a buffet line until it makes sense in their head with all that they're seeing and experiencing in this life. So they'll say, I'll take a little bit of that, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and a little bit of that, and I'll form my own God until it reconciles with what I see and experience. Believing something doesn't make it true. but nor does refusing to believe it make it false. 
Jesus upheld biblical monotheism when he prayed to his father. This is what he said. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We believe there is only one true God who is the creator of all things. So let's go a little bit further with that. The Bible opens with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From cover to cover, the Bible points to God who is the creator. Hebrews 11:3 on the screen says, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. I'm going to say that again. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. When we look at the universe that we live in, there has to be an explanation. We, we have to find resolve, right? I want you to check this out. Anybody like baseball? Anybody play baseball? Anybody watch baseball? That baseball is the one where they throw it from the pitcher's mound. Okay, you, okay, yeah. Listen to this. A Yale physicist, Robert Adair, studied the science behind hitting a major league fastball. He discovered that a 90 mile an hour fastball travels 60 feet and six inches from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's mitt in 400 milliseconds. That's less than half a second. He figured out that it takes the batter's brain 200 milliseconds to find the ball in the air get the image into his brain, and then decide whether or not he's going to swing. So half of the time the ball is in the air, the batter is simply trying to decide what to do. If the batter decides to swing, he spends another 100 milliseconds trying to decide, do I swing high, low, inside, outside, where do I swing? So a batter is down 300 milliseconds before he even swings the bat. The swing itself takes 150 milliseconds. Anybody have their calculator? During the first 50 milliseconds, the batter can stop their swing. Beyond the 50, the bat is moving at 70% of its swing and cannot be stopped. So Adair says a seven millisecond variation will determine whether a batter fouls the ball off or misses it completely. So let me recap. 200 milliseconds locating the ball, 100 making the decision, 150 swinging, at, swinging the bat, a total in 450 millisecond, which means that the ball is already in the catcher's mitt. Right? So according to Adair and the laws of physics, a 90 mile an hour fastball is impossible to hit. But none of us would agree with that. Because most of you have either played baseball and you know that it's possible or you've watched the game and you've, you've seen a 90 mile an hour fastball hit. So something must be wrong with the calculations. I can't explain the facts, but I also can't deny what I've seen. There is something about that that helps us in our understanding of God and creation. Andy Stanley says it like this. You are smart enough not to opt for the unexplainable over the undeniable. The undeniable takes precedence over the unexplainable. Some say 
Atheistic evolution, which suggests a gradual development from a simple to a more complex form, is the way that we got all of this stuff. Some will say, what was the Big Bang theory, right? Suggesting the entire universe was created when a tiny, super dense, super hot mass exploded, and then that's how we got all of our stars, and that's how we got all of our galaxies. But the Bible, remember where we're getting our source, the source of truth, the Bible says differently. The Bible teaches that the premise and the doctrine of creation can be defined like this. God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it to glorify himself. Now, remember the parameters that I talked about? Some believe in what's called the old earth theory, which suggests that the earth is billions of years old. Uh, This position, for those who believe it, uh, they they support, maybe they look at Genesis 1, and they look at verses 1 and 2, and they say, well, there's what's called a gap theory. So there's a big gap between verse 1 and 2, where there's millions and maybe billions of years. And that's how they would explain it. Or they would say that the word day, the way it's used in the book of Genesis, doesn't really mean a 24-hour day period of time. That's the older theory. Some believe in what's called the young earth theory, which suggests that the earth is thousands of years old and was created by God in a literal six-day period of time. Just as it's written in Scripture, they would say this is the way it's written. So is is the earth 14 billion years old or is it 7,000 years old? There's, There's quite a difference there. And the answer is we don't know. And the truth is it's not really what matters. What matters is that we know and believe that there is one God who created all things outside of himself out of nothing. The doctrine of God and the doctrine of creation rules out polytheism, meaning there's more than one God, or pantheism, which means the world itself is God. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been seen. Creation gives us enough logical evidence to know that there is a God. There's one God, creator of all things. Secondly, we believe God is holy and perfect. So let's talk for a moment about the character of God. Who who is he? Um, In trying to answer that question, we could spend days I mean, I could just walk around with the microphone and say, Who, who's God? And we come up with all kinds of things, all kinds of characteristics. But there's one primary characteristic that stands out, and it's his holiness. Moses was told, he said, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. Peter says, whoa, away from me. I'm a sinner. Scripture says that he is pure as silver, and he's without sin. People fell down in the presence of God and others stood in awe. He was set apart, he is set apart. In fact, the Hebrew word for the word holy is cut or separate. And the Old Testament reveals God to be above and separate from all that he created. He's exalted above everything. 
So Isaiah in the Old Testament, maybe you're familiar with him, had a vision. And in his vision, he found himself in the presence of a holy God. And you can read about this in Isaiah chapter 6. And instantly, he, he, he became dramatically aware of his own sin and how much he fell short of God. Do you remember this in Isaiah chapter 6? And in verse 3 it says, And they were calling to one another. This is part of his vision. He's seeing this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth was full of his glory. If we had lived in the Old Testament times, we would have understood that living a holy life, to mean being set apart or separating ourselves from things that were unclean. Israel was a group of people. They were set apart by God and who had to guard and even isolate themselves from the influences of, of the things that were around them. And the repetition of the words holy, holy, holy tells us that God's holiness, that is his supreme characteristic, that is a supreme attribute. And it's the foundation for existence. God's holiness is the very characteristic from which everything else about God flows out of. He loves because he is holy. He is just because he is holy. Back to Isaiah chapter six, verse five. It's amazing that the way Isaiah responded when he imagines himself in the presence of a holy God. He says, woe is me. That is, I am filled with overwhelming convictions of my own unworthiness with alarm that I have seen Yahweh. To define that a little bit, it means this, for I am undone, cut off. I have sinned, I'm miserable, I'm pierced through, I'm struck dumb, the most probable meaning is I shall be ruined or destroyed. So Isaiah recognized that he is undone or he is ruined if God should deal with him in the strict way. Isaiah says that my eyes have seen him. My eyes have been opened to who God really is. He saw the King, the Lord Almighty. And we, today, what do we, what's our response to this holy God? 1 Peter 3.16 says this, Be holy because I am holy. God has commissioned us to live holy lives simply because he's holy. So without the holiness of God... The gospel makes no sense. Isaiah would have stood tall and proud, right, without the holiness of God. He would have stood there tall and proud, recognizing no difference between he and God. We would stand tall and proud before God. Without the holiness of God, we would have no conviction of sin and no need for a savior. He's perfect in all of his ways. He's completely without defect. He has no faults, no blemishes, he is not deficient in any way. He lacks nothing. He cannot be any more perfect than he already is. You, maybe you've been in a discussion or you've heard, overheard a discussion that, that goes like this. Oh, and look at you. You're so perfect. Everything you do is perfect. Everything you say is perfect. And we do that to kind of try and help us understand ourselves, right? 
While no person is even in the zip code of perfection, we worship a God who is infinitely perfect. And because of sin, we live in a fallen world. It's a world that's broke, that's filled with defects, faults, blemishes, and in our finite thinking, we cannot comprehend the holiness and the perfection of God. It isn't about making sense of it. It's about knowing and believing it to be true. He is holy, set apart. He is perfect without fault or blemish. Woe, woe, woe is me. Romans eleven thirty three says this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. There's one God. He's the creator of all things. He's holy and he's perfect. Third, we believe God is three in one the triune God. We believe in the Trinity, right? We, we just sang that. We believe in the Trinity, which means three in oneness. The Trinity teaches us that God is three persons, yet one God. He's God the Father, he's God the Son, he's God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, they are all God, but they are not all each other. And right now you're just like All three are different and yet they're the same. They're independent, and yet they're dependent. They're distinct, and yet they're together. Each person is fully God, and the only distinction is made in the way that they interact with each other and with creation. Here is what the Trinity is not. The Trinity is not a God who reveals himself in three different ways. That's called modalism. There is not one God who is sometimes the Father and sometimes the Son and sometimes the Holy Spirit. They are one and yet all three are distinctly different. All three are equally divine and all three have eternally existed as one God. You know, a lot of times we think of God as the one who existed before creation and then eventually Jesus comes on the scene and eventually the Holy Spirit comes on the scene, actually they, all three of them have eternally existed. And while the word Trinity, is, it's never used in scripture, there, there is evidence of the Godhead in three and one from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, the term Trinity helps bring clarity to, to what we see in scripture. Listen to Romans 1.8. This is what Paul writes. See if you can pick up on the Trinity. He says, first... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you. There's one example right there of how the Trinity is revealed in scripture. When Jesus' time on earth was drawing near, he, he affirmed the Trinity in his instruction to his followers. In the details of the Trinity, no one will fully understand this side of heaven. But here's what we do know. 
Because the Father draws you, the scripture says, the Son saves you, and the Holy Spirit gives you life. It's good to know the difference. Every illustration about the Trinity breaks down. You've probably heard a million of them, right? Uh, the shoe, the, the egg, and all those kind of illustrations. I remember uh, a couple years ago, I did a series on the Holy Spirit, and um, I made an attempt to kind of describe the Trinity, and I had some people come up on stage. And so th these are just my uh, weak approaches to trying to help you understand the Trinity. Um, and, and I had three people come up on stage, maybe you remember this, and, and they were all facing outward, and then I had them lock arms. And I said that they are all God, but they are not all each other. Being God unifies them, being unique diversifies them. So think of unity and diversity. Or imagine three people who share the exact same DNA. So they're identical in that way. Or imagine Siamese triplets. And what they share is the fact that they're all God. Do you see how impossible it is to grasp the Trinity? The Trinitarian God is far beyond comprehension, but incredibly awesome. There is one God. He's the creator of all things. He's holy and perfect. He's three in one. And then last, we believe in God's limitless knowledge and a sovereign power. Limitless knowledge. That means he's omniscient. That means he knows everything past, everything present, everything future. There is nothing that has or will happen that God lacks knowledge of. God is never surprised. He's never caught off guard. He never finds himself in a reactionary position. That's called open theism, which, by the way, is a really um, prevalent movement today or theological thought today, and that is that God really doesn't know the future, and we're just here living lives, using our free will, and we're just living out life, and then God all of a sudden responds to something in our life when something goes haywire, or we go off track, or, or that kind of thing. So God's in this reactionary position. And to be frank and to be honest, uh, if we believed in that position, we'd be like, okay, that helps me make sense of life because God didn't know that was going to happen and God's just responding to what I'm doing in life. But the reality is it's not true. Can you imagine believing in God and he's not omniscient? That he doesn't know your life? Look, he knows every thought before it's even a thought. He knows every action you will take. He knows your tendencies, your ways. He knows your heart. He knows your passions. He knows your preferences. He knows what you like, what you dislike. He knows what decisions you'll make before there's even a decision to make. He knows your deepest needs, even when you don't know or can't put words to them. He knows your struggles. He knows your every hurt. He knows not only your past, but every detail of your future. He knows not only what today will bring, but what tomorrow will bring, and next week, and next month, and next year. He knows right now when you will take your last breath. If God doesn't know my future, he is not God. To lack knowledge is to lack sovereignty. And if he's not sovereign, I'm going to be a royal mess, even more than I am now. 
his sovereign power. When Moses asked to God, well, if they ask, who am I supposed to say sent me? And what did God say to him? God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am who I am has sent you. That means self-existing one. The Bible teaches us that God is El Elyon, which means the exalted one, and everything else is below him. It teaches us that he's El Shaddai, which means most powerful in strength. When a person is not committed to there being only one God who is all-powerful, when, when a person's not committed to that, they land on two different possibilities. Either God is all-powerful, see if you can get your mind around this, either he's all-powerful, but he's not all-good. In other words, doesn't want to stop evil. Or he's all-good, but he's not all-powerful. He can't stop evil. But what if God is all-powerful and all-good? I like how one person said it. Nothing happens unless omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. Think about your life. Let me say it again. Nothing happens unless omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen, in other words, allows, or he brings it about himself. If God is not all powerful, he ceases to be God. God cannot be who we think he is or who we want him to be. He is who he is, no matter what we think. Isaiah 46.10 says this, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, listen to this last phrase, and I will do all that I please. There's one God. He's the creator of all things. He's holy and perfect. He's three in one. He's limitless in knowledge and power. So there's God in 30 minutes. You know everything about him now? I did my best. Let me leave you with one thing. I love this, this thought by A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So as Joel is getting ready uh, to lead us in the final song, I want you to, I want you to ponder that, that thought. What comes into mind when we think about God? What comes into your mind when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you um, that we get to talk about uh, you today. And uh, Lord, it always, it always falls short. But we desire to know you more. Lord, we, we desire for you to expand our vision, our understanding, our deepest thoughts. The more we know you, the more we relate to you. The more we understand your character, your holiness, 
the more that we can stand on truth and know that you are one God, you're our only God, you created all things, that you're infinitely perfect. Thank you.